J.R.R. Tolkien is the author of the beloved series, The Lord of the Rings. And he died in 1973, and his incredible creativity continues to be appreciated around the world. And one of the things he created was a new English word, in addition to a non-English language. But a new English word that I want to focus on, a new English word called eucatastrophe. In that word, you can hear a familiar term, catastrophe. Now, normally when you think of a catastrophe, nothing good's coming from that. You call it a catastrophe for a reason. You intended something to go one way, and then a catastrophe. Tolkien added something to that word. It's just two letters. It turns out all of us can invent words if we just add two letters to things, I guess. Tolkien added the prefix U. E-U, forming the word eucatastrophe. The word eucatastrophe means a sudden favorable turning of events. And a catastrophe, as Tolkien rightly noted, a catastrophe in itself is a sudden turning of events. It's unplanned, undesirable. But a eucatastrophe is sudden, favorable, and happy. A eucatastrophe, which he tried to write in his most eloquent ways in his short and, and full fiction works was a way of talking about resolution and endings that seem to be sudden and heart-lifting. Here's how Tolkien described the word he coined in a letter he wrote. Tolkien says, I coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story, which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And he said, I was led to the view it produces its peculiar effect Because it is a glimpse of truth. Your whole nature feels a sudden relief. As if a major limb out of joint has been snapped back. And I concluded, Tolkien says, the resurrection is the greatest eucatastrophe possible. Tolkien is a believer. And in his writings, he tries to speak in ways weaving stories of hope and life into his fiction And in the Lord of the Rings, it permeates the stories. This term, eucatastrophe, is applicable to Luke 24. That's what we are reflecting on. The first 23 chapters of the gospel are an unfolding story, and then the Savior dies, and then the eucatastrophe is told. The sudden turning of events with such an explosive joy and long-awaited resolution It is moving. It is bewildering. It is in some cases for those 11 disciples. It is destabilizing. And they're trying to come to grips with the new world that Christ has announced. In our scene today, we have to remember the day we are studying. It's the day of Jesus' resurrection. We've not moved on from Luke 24.1, that first day of the week. We're at the evening. So we've gone from the beginning of that morning now to the evening But in Luke 24, we're still on that same first day. Jesus has made himself known to a couple of the disciples on a road to Emmaus. We saw that over the last couple weeks together. These two disciples, one of whom was named Cleopas, they walked home. Jesus accompanied them along the way and even began to break bread with them in their home. And they became aware of who he was. Their eyes were open to him. Their eyes had been kept previously from recognizing him. 
But in beholding his resurrected glory and encountering the risen Christ, they see with the eyes opened to his presence, he vanishes before them. They do what you would have expected them to do, not wait till the next morning. They hurry quickly to Jerusalem, a seven-mile walk, probably in that case a run. And they get to those disciples to share the news that the risen Christ has been with them. They had earlier heard the testimony of some women who went to an empty tomb. A vision of angels those women had reportedly seen. But as as far and wide as the disciples were concerned, they have not encountered the risen Lord. But now two people have a story. And they rush to Jerusalem. After saying to each other in verse 32, didn't our hearts burn within us? While he opened to us the scriptures on the road, they rushed to Jerusalem that very hour. And then when they found the others, they said, they say in, well, I should say they began to speak, ready to share their testimony, only to be met with disciples who have already a testimony to share themselves. The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. These two Emmaus disciples learn Not only have they themselves encountered the Lord, Simon has encountered the Lord. And now stories are being exchanged, testimony is being proclaimed. The Lord has risen indeed. They did not conclude that Jesus was risen because they implied it from an empty tomb. They concluded that Jesus was risen Because they encountered the bodily risen Jesus from the dead. It's the eucatastrophe of the story. In verse 36, they're in mid-conversation. And suddenly, an appearance of Jesus takes place in their midst. As far as we know from the Word of God, this is the widest scope of appearance to that point in Luke 24 compared with the other Gospels. It will get wider still. According to 1 Corinthians 15, hundreds of people will soon encounter the risen Jesus. And many of those hundreds at the same time. Here we have a room in Jerusalem. We don't have an address here. But we do know that there was a house in Jerusalem where the disciples had earlier eaten a supper with Jesus. Perhaps it's a similar home, the very home. They're talking about these things in a room. And according to John chapter 20, the people are there in fear of the Jews. They're all locked up. I don't mean by the Romans. I mean they're locked up with the doors shut. And the windows locked. And the curtains drawn. Okay, so they're they're in this house in fear of the Jews. And any particular suspicion around them because they just learned of Jesus' crucifixion days earlier. They'd fled in Gethsemane, and now their Redeemer had been crucified. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's appeared to Peter. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's appeared to Cleopas and the other disciple on the Emmaus Road. And now in verse 36, as they're talking about these things, because how couldn't they be not talking about them? There's nothing more interesting, nothing more relevant, nothing more pressing than this news. Jesus himself stood among them. And it doesn't say they first heard a knock at the door or a tap at the window. It seems as if 
just as at the table in Emmaus, he left the visibility of the two disciples there. He could make himself visible in a room with those other disciples without having to go through a door. He stood among them. This had to have been quite frightening, as you can imagine the truth of verse 37 just laid out for us. They were startled, frightened, thought they saw a spirit. How absolutely unnerving this would be. Nobody comes into our presence that way. You might realize somebody snuck up on you, but it wasn't as if they were invisible and made themselves visible. And if you could look at all the entrances locked and sealed, you knew that they must have been in the place already. In this case, Jesus himself stood among them, having not been with them bodily to that point. And he announces to them, peace to you. I like what one scholar put it. He said, how one scholar put it, he says, this new body of Jesus. And by new, I simply mean not Jesus you know, in, not unlike this Jesus they would have known, they wouldn't have recognized Him, or had any sense of continuity with the body before the resurrection, but knew in the sense of glorified and capable physically of things that in His mortality a physical body would not normally do. The writer says this new body belongs to God's world in both heaven and earth. Jesus' new body, he says, is at home in both earth and heaven. And I think the unusual activity you see in Luke 24 demonstrates that. The bodies of those disciples are perishable, mortal, and at home in the world. They must be raised from the dead to inherit the kingdom of God. But Jesus' body, raised on the third day, is at home in both heaven and earth. In other words, his body exhibits a kind of dimensional or reality to it that is not limited by the things of earth. Walls, doors, windows. And if anybody in the room had zoned out or whose mind had gone into the clouds for a moment thinking about the wonder of the resurrection, everybody had zoned in now. If anybody had been in the middle of speaking, nobody was speaking anymore. Suddenly, a person had appeared in their midst. And this person speaks. And the person says, peace to you. And we we should have a sense of wonder that 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 is his response to them in the room. He didn't come... And begin chastising them. Turning over tables and chairs. In the room. He did not come to announce. That due to all of their shameful actions. They need to take their stuff and go. Back to Galilee with you all. You'll have no part with me. No part with my work. What a disappointment you've all turned out to be. Jesus comes. Instead. To that room of sinners and announces peace to you. They needed that news. And I don't think that's a mere subjective sense of relief. Where they they have only some kind of subjective ease or relief. 
There is that kind of peace. You can think of a, a, a sense of being stirred up and worked up about something and you can feel calmed. I don't think Jesus is showing up saying, everybody stay calm. Everybody have some relief. I think it's more than that. I don't think it's less than that. I think he is primarily announcing the gracious gift of God, peace that they need. Peace that implies, if you will, a context where there had been enmity, warfare, uh, uh, the kind of objective situation where, oh, that situation needs peace. That relationship needs peace. That dynamic needs peace, wholeness, reconciliation. Sin does not put us at peace. Sin has brought such a deep fracture to our hearts and to our world. The dilemma of the human condition is that we are not at peace with God. All is not well. All is not well with the world. All is not well with the human heart. We need Christ. And Jesus' announcement in His resurrected body to His fearful disciples is peace to you. And I think we should consider that notion of reconciliation and union and togetherness and blessing. He is appearing to His fearful disciples and He doesn't say, one day I hope you guys have some peace. What if He's actually announcing the fruit of His finished work on the cross? In other words, if on the cross in John 19 he says it is finished, he can come to sinners and proclaim peace to them in him. It's on the basis of what he's done. They don't have peace because of anything they've done. It's not a reconciliation in any way conditioned because of something they've achieved. If what Jesus is doing is announcing peace to them, It is rooted in His finished work. The fruit of His finished work is for a Redeemer to call sinners to recognize there's peace in Him. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. In Romans 5.1, Paul says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a peace of earthly circumstances subjective ebbing and flowing feelings that is to say in our human heart we were at enmity with God and but God in his love for us sent his son and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and in Romans 5 10 Paul says while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son Romans 5 10 Jesus announces peace because the cross wasn't a failure. The cross was an accomplishment. The cross was a fulfillment. And the death of Jesus on the cross secures our everlasting peace with God. That that announcement in verse 36 might have been quite difficult for them to believe. If they had any inkling, any self-reflection at all, about the previous days. They might realize we're the people who followed him in his ministry and then abandoned him in the Gethsemane garden. They might think of themselves as those who've been mourning and hiding in fear. They have not believed Jesus' words when he said he would rise as the Son of Man on the third day. 
Among them would have been Peter, who had denied Jesus three times in the high priest's courtyard. We might understand if it crossed their minds, he must be talking to somebody, but surely he can't be talking to me. But indeed, the staggering news of the gospel is that Jesus comes to sinners, having finished atoning work on the cross, and announces that there is peace for sinners in him. Peace to you, he says. Oh, friend, maybe you need that reminder of Jesus today. Maybe you need that reminder that in your circumstances and challenges and trials of life, which are all part of our ever-changing world and the ebbing and flowing of our inner feelings, which are no sure and safe barometer of our standing with God, that it must be Christ and His objective work and love demonstrated on the cross who comes to us in His mercy and announces peace to the undeserving. The more we sense how undeserving we are, the more staggering the news of the gospel it is. The more sense of our unworthiness and the more a sense of how how, uh, sinful and worthy of judgment we are, the more moved and floored we become that the Lord Jesus would draw near with peace. What What sort of figure is this? And I, and I think that's because in our, in our human hearts, there is a reluctance. There is a reluctance to just receive unconditioned grace. We just, we just want to have a part to play. We want to have some stake in it. We want to say, but you know, in the end, like, isn't it, isn't it because... Of something in me. And isn't it because I've done. The idea of our unworthiness. And the sheer love of God. Coming near to sinners. There are no categories in our mind for this. It it just pushes against our works righteousness. That's so powerfully operative within. J.C. Ryle is insightful. When he says Jesus is far more willing to forgive. Than men are to be forgiven. I, I think we have to. Ponder that for a moment. Jesus is far more willing to forgive than men are to be forgiven. And he is far more ready to pardon than men are to be pardoned. And Ryle says, free, full, undeserved forgiveness to the uttermost is not the manner of man. Not only do we realize Ryle is correct... We, we get a sense of, because we are human creatures, we understand then how staggering the radical grace of the gospel is to believe because free, full, undeserved forgiveness to the uttermost. We just don't have that kind of capacity in our lives to operate that way. We would long to be that way. We would love to imitate the Lord in this way, but Ryle is correct. Free, full, undeserved forgiveness to the uttermost is not the manner of man. Then he says, but it is the manner of Christ. It is the manner of Christ. These disciples respond. Jesus has just appeared and pronounced peace to them, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw spirit. Luke tells us the disciples' reaction and their reasoning. When we understand both, first of all, we understand why they're frightened. Nothing normal about this encounter. A spirit, they think, has just appeared before them. 
No knock at the door, no tap on the window. They're all in mid-conversation talking about these things. And then suddenly Jesus is there. And there is, there's even a category of some angelic appearances from the Gospel of Luke earlier on, like in Luke 1 and in Luke 2. Even in the Old Testament, the idea of something heavenly appearing and then disappearing. And the idea of a glorified, risen Christ in their midst, they're not prepared for this. They're struggling to process it. That's their startled state, their frightened demeanor, and their reasoning. They thought they saw a spirit. But let's be clear, a spirit would be in some sense a lesser situation than the Jesus they had encountered earlier. A Jesus that they knew for years, who was an embodied Savior, an embodied teacher, an embodied Messiah. Uh, to, to encounter a mere spirit would be to say he's now disembodied. He was spirit and body, but now only spirit. No, this is not some spirit or ghostly situation. Nor is, it, nor is it a grotesque situation that might be depicted in film or books sometimes to picture a zombie where here is this corpse that has been brought to life. Something that is grotesque and something that is frightening. This is not Jesus who is the walking dead. No, this is not a ghostly situation. This is not some zombie situation. This is real, glorified, embodied life. This is life then that was greater than his earlier embodied life before the cross. In other words, the physical life of his resurrected body is greater and mightier and lasting when you compare it to before the cross. This is a situation that in no way is less than. It is greater in every capacity. So yes, they're frightened. And yes, they think they saw a spirit. But they have not fully apprehended what is before them. In verses 38 to 40, he's going to help them see the bodily reality that is in front of them. And he opens with two questions in verse 38 after he's announced peace to you. Two questions. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now they are frightened... They are troubled, and he wants them to ponder that. Why are you troubled? A normal reaction of being frightened at something that they're not expecting. You might imagine being frightened by something that you're scared of. All of a sudden, a person rounds a corner that you didn't know coming. Or maybe in your household, you like to scare people from time to time like we do in ours. And uh, somebody's coming around, and you know that they don't know you're there. And uh, so you just give a little happy surprise, and they give a happy shout. Um, yeah, in this case, in this case, I'm, I'm tempted to tell a couple of stories, but I won't. Uh, in verse 38, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Are they sure what's going on? They're not sure they're sure. Are we really seeing what we're seeing? But Jesus, the risen Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, perceives in their hearts, truly, you are not just on board with this 100%. You're struggling to see. This is a theme in multiple Luke 24 stories. The women had gone to the tomb in Luke 24 not expecting a resurrection. They took the spices with them. The people on the road to Emmaus were walking sad seven miles back home because they were not expecting a resurrection even though it was the third day. Here these disciples are encountering Jesus. And Jesus says, why are you troubled? 
Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And yet at the same time, I find that incredibly assuring because Jesus, knowing their human condition and knowing that they are struggling in faith and they are trying to understand and that there is much for them to process and that must seem incredibly overwhelming, he nonetheless proclaims peace to them and will be patient with them. Oh, how we need the peace of Christ and the patience of Christ. We just don't know all that we should. We might wish we were further along than we are. But friend, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus is with you. Christ is for you. He loves you. And he says in verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. We could suggest here the first of two remedies for their problem. The first is he's drawing attention to his physical flesh and bones. Physical flesh and bones. And then the second piece of evidence will be a little bit later in verses 40 and 41. Do you have anything to eat? So he's going to demonstrate his physical state by showing them his body and then by consuming food in his body. So two pieces of evidence. Verses 38 through 40 are about this first piece. The demonstration of his materiality or his physicality right before them. This is the same scene in John's Gospel in John 20. Jesus appears to the disciples in John 20, and we're told in chapter 20, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. And Luke here emphasizes his hands and his feet. And so in Luke and in John's gospel, what's Jesus showing them? The wounds. Or we might say the scars. It's not as if these wounds are still uh, doing what the wounds would be doing on the cross. He's been raised from the dead. But it is intriguing, isn't it? That they could notice something in his hands and in his feet and in John 20 in his side. Think about that in a second together. Jesus is insisting I am not a disembodied spirit. Don't think that for one moment. You're not looking at some state with me and you where I am less than I was before. I am greater than. They can take a closer look even. He says come forward. Who wants to step forward first? Here's my hands and my feet. I don't know, you might be looking around and thinking, well, why don't you go? Andrew, why don't you go? Well, don't call me out, Bartholomew, why don't you go? All having opportunities here to look and to examine and to behold. And it tells us in verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Have you ever wondered why Jesus still possessed his scars? That's often the term given to them. The scars upon his hands, his feet, his side. People have reflected on this, not just in recent centuries, but throughout church history, people have written on this. And I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon said in an 1859 sermon. If Jesus had pleased, he could have readily removed all the scars. He rose again from the dead. He might have erased from his body everything which could be any indication he'd suffered and endured before descending to the tomb. But Spurgeon says, no. Instead, there are pierced hands and feet and an open side. What's the reason for this? And we should reflect on this. And I want to suggest to you four 
reasons why the scars of Jesus remained after the resurrection for his disciples to see. And why I don't think we should assume those were just for the disciples to see, but instead would be an everlasting and glorified reality in the body of the Christ who has been raised. Four reasons. Number one, first, these scars demonstrate his identity as the Jesus they knew. These scars demonstrate his identity as the Jesus they knew. This seems to be confirmed by Jesus' own words in verse 39. He says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Now think about the implications here. If he's wanting to demonstrate that I am Jesus, what they know is that the Jesus they followed had been crucified on the cross. And Jesus welcomes them to see him demonstrate his identity as the Jesus they have known and heard and followed and believed. First of all, these scars demonstrate his identity. Spurgeon says, he was the very same Jesus whom they'd followed, whom at last they had deserted. It was the very same Christ who was now before them, that they might know it. He was the same person. His hands and feet could testify to that. It was, in other words, important, first of all, for the disciples to see in these scars. Here is the Jesus that we deserted. Here is the Jesus that was crucified. Here is the Jesus that was buried. He stands risen before us. Secondly, these scars highlight the effects of the cross. These scars highlight the effects of the cross. In other words, Jesus was not only wounded by the cross. You know that when Jesus was arrested, he was not immediately taken to Golgotha. They beat him. They pressed a crown of thorns on his head. He was struck and he was brutalized. The Romans flogged him with a dreaded whip that would lacerate a body and expose muscle and bone and more. How does Jesus appear to them? Not in that brutalized, emaciated, exposed all over the place state. The only scars that remain are the ones not before the cross, but are the wounds inflicted with his death on the cross. That's it. The hands, the feet, the side. These scars, in other words, highlight the effects of the cross. Third, The scars display Christ's victory. One writer in church history named Beattie says, Jesus kept his scars not from any inability to heal them, but to wear them as an everlasting trophy of his victory. That's a great way to think about it. I love that. His scars were kept not from his inability to heal them, but to wear them as an everlasting trophy of his victory. In other words, third, the scars display the victory of Christ. The marks of Jesus on his hands, feet, and side are not marks of shame, not marks of defeat, 
but marks of reconciliation, redemption, substitution, love, and victory. Fourth, and finally, these scars will prompt everlasting praise from the saints. I think Spurgeon is correct here in his 1859 sermon. Spurgeon says, Christ wears these scars in his body in heaven as his ornaments. The wounds of Christ, he says, are his glories. They are his jewels, his precious things. And friends, when it comes to your jewels and your glories and your precious things, those are not things you do away with. And therefore, neither would he do away with them. Because first, they would demonstrate his identity as the Jesus they knew. Secondly, it would highlight the effects of the cross specifically, even though he had endured earlier suffering that would not remain in any way upon his body. Third, it would display his victory because on the cross, a victory was accomplished, not a defeat. And then fourthly, his scars will prompt everlasting praise from the saints. The scars of Jesus are a covenant love story. They tell a story of his demonstrated love from the cross. The scars of Jesus will prompt the praise of the saints because the scars will forever remind us of his new covenant work upon the tree. His love for us forever told in these scars that he would never do away with when what they will display and remind us of is even greater than if they were gone. One writer puts it this way, if you ever wonder just how faithful Jesus is, look at the scars in his hands, feet, and side. Those are his wedding ring, emblazoned on his very flesh, as the living pledge of his undying commitment to you. Oh, friends, we sang it earlier. My name is graven on his hands. The first piece of evidence of his physical state, behold my hands and my feet. The second piece of evidence that ends our passage today is the meal in verses 41 to 43. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, now let's pause there for a second. I don't want you to be overly worried about the disciples. He's not saying, well, you know what was in the room, just a bunch of unbelievers in the room that day. I don't think disbelief for joy is meant to mean something overly negative. I think disbelief for joy, it's an idiom, an expression Similar to when we say, I can't believe this happened. And when we express it that way, we're in front of something that's happening. And yet it's so overwhelming, so stunning, it's a catastrophe. It's a sudden turning of events in such a happy way that when it says here they're disbelieving for joy and are marveling, I think we should understand these disciples in their limited, not perfect understanding and faith. To be taking it in, processing, seeking how to understand and believe what is before them. This has never happened to them. And I, so I don't take this to be an overly negative statement about disbelieving for joy and marvel. I think what we're seeing are hearts awakening and minds illuminating, understanding, opening up. While they were disbelieving for joy and were marveling, Jesus says... Have you anything to eat? I love Jesus' questions here. You know, earlier, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Do you have anything to eat? 
It's not an irrelevant question. Because a disembodied spirit isn't going to eat anything. If you've ever wondered, why did Luke record this? The reason is to give further confirmation of the real, physical, embodied state of Jesus before them. The question matters. Okay, so he's going to eat something. And after all, he's our guest. And he's in this home. We probably ought to have offered him something already. He's got to be the one to ask for food. It's probably not good on us. Have you here anything to eat? And in verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Last week, I tried to suggest to you some earlier ties to that Emmaus meal in Luke 24. Here they were, Jesus, Cleopas, and the other disciple at the table, about to break bread. He blesses it, breaks it, passes it out. Now, um, I suggested to you a very tight link to the 5,000 feeding. That miracle in Luke 9, where he took the bread and he gave thanks and he blessed it and he broke it. And how before Luke 9 and after Luke 9, the identity of Jesus were things that were being spoken of by rulers and crowds, disciples. Who do you say that I am? These were tied to things that miracles were supposed to prompt people to wonder. Who is this that feeds 5,000 people? What sort of person is this that calms the storms and heals the sick and exercises the demons? The miracles were to prompt that. But in the feeding of the 5,000, we know that not only was there bread involved, there was fish involved. Because there was a little boy who had both loaves and fish. And one of the reasons that I think Luke 24 could recall that 5,000 feeding scene is because in Luke 24, Jesus sits at a table in Emmaus with bread. And here in Luke 24, there is some fish. Bread and fish go together, especially when people are trying to understand who Jesus is. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And in verse 43, he took it and he ate it before them. Now, I'm just, to use my imagination here, it doesn't say they all ate the fish together. They may have already eaten. But, but I bet here what they're doing is they're just all watching Jesus eat. In, my, in the theater of my mind, what I'm watching is Jesus has his knife and his fork, okay? He's cutting up the fish. And they're just sitting here watching. Okay, he took a bite. He's just chewing it. It's swell. He's going for a second bite. And then he's just, they're just watching him. It's like, well, that fish, it's almost gone. He ate the whole thing. And they're just watching Jesus. And that had to be so awkward in a sense. And Jesus is just patiently cutting just patiently chewing, just watching them process this in, because this is the first day of new creation that's dawned in the world. And what's Jesus doing? His, his meal of choice is he's eating fish in front of people, and they're watching him eat it, and this is instructive. He's teaching them if they have eyes to see. What he's teaching them is that I have been raised bodily from the dead. And I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to eat with you. Peace to you. Let's have a meal together. Do you have anything to eat? Jesus has come to dine and fellowship with sinners. He's come to reconcile the enemies of God to make them friends of God. He's come to make you a friend of God. His grace is in the word proclaimed even this morning of a risen Christ and Savior. Friend, I wonder what you see 
And I wonder what your heart understands. I wonder what you believe of this. Because these disciples are processing it all. And truly, as one writer put it, only a person with a real body is going to eat. And the eating of this fish verifies. This is the Jesus risen from the dead. His own resurrection is the first fruits of ours. Do not think for one moment that the life to come will in some way be less than the joys and pleasures of embodied life now. This life pales into comparison with what is in store for us. What's coming is greater, not lesser. And what's coming is not a disembodied life eternally. While we die, and while we will be away from the body and at home with the Lord, we will be raised from the dead. We were made for everlasting embodied life with God. Not away in some spirit sense, with angel wings, floating on clouds. What a boring eternity that would be. Praise God, that's not the future. We were made for everlasting embodied life with God in glory and joy and pleasure inconceivable. We have been reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says, we are looking forward to a complete restoration. At this time, the body is dead because of sin. It hence, it suffers pain and tends to decay. In the resurrection, however, the body will be quickened also. And the resurrection shall be to the body what regeneration has been to the soul. Thus shall our humanity be completely delivered from the consequences of the fall. Perfect manhood is what Jesus restores from sin and grave, Spurgeon says. This will be ours in the day of His appearing. What I want us to see is that Luke 24 tells of the foretaste or the first fruits of resurrection life in the world. We are beholding a glorified, embodied physicality in Christ. He's been brought from death. Death has been defeated. And our resurrection will be the defeat of our death as well. Because we are in Christ. A eucatastrophe has come into the world. A very happy turning of events. By the sovereign plan of God, the resurrection of Jesus has brought the dawning of new creation. And those disciples, in helping process all of that, were invited to eat and dine with Jesus and watched Him eat fish right in front of them. Jesus had fully overcome death. He had fully satisfied the judgment of God in their place. So friend, I think Jesus' questions can be uh, quite pertinent in our hearts today. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And in the Lord's Supper for a moment, in a moment, we'll answer the question, have you here anything to eat? You and I need, though, the assuring words of our blessed Redeemer. He says to us today, peace to you. Peace to you. Let's pray.